like to invite up Sheila Durr at this time. Sheila and her family have been associated and in our community for a couple of decades. I got yelled at at staff meeting because I said something and people thought I was being ageist, you know, but I would never do that. I respect my elders. Um, but I'm glad you guys believe me. That's great. Um, but nah, we wanted to um, first give, give a chance for us as a, a congregation to say thanks to Sheila. This is her last Sunday as she steps down as serving as our church administrator. Um, but then I also wanted us to just pray for Sheila and her family. So one, let's give her thanks. <laughs> uh, thank you. And then two, I also want to give opportunity as I pray for Sheila and her family. If you have been impacted by Sheila's ministry or you just want to do the, the Anabaptist thing and lay hands on her the right way, um, please come up. I'd like to invite you to come up at this time as we, I don't know if you want to come to the front a little bit, as I just um, pray for Sheila as well. So. Let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you so much for our sister Sheila. We thank you for how you've equipped her. We thank you for how you've blessed her. We thank you for the many gifts you've given her. Lord, we thank you for her heart for you. We thank you for her love and heart for this church. God, we thank you for every sweat, every idea, every extra hour. Um, we thank you for how she's shown us how to just be a servant. And we thank you that extends to her family as well. We thank you for Dave, who served this church for so many years as well, and Jonah, who's now learning from both of them to walk in service for you. God, we pray for this family. We pray a special blessing on them. God, we thank you again just for how we've been enriched, how we've been blessed, and how we've grown because of their work. Lord, I pray for my sister Sheila specifically now. God, I thank you that you hold her future. I thank you that you've blessed and equipped her to do and continue to work for your kingdom. So, God, I pray that you give her just continued peace. I pray that you fill her and continue to fill her with your wisdom, your compassion, your love, and your mercy. God, I'm excited for what you're going to continue to do through her. And I thank you so much that because of who she is and because of who you are, we know that through that partnership between you and her, between her heart and yours, the kingdom will be enriched, the kingdom will continue to grow, and the kingdom will continue to be blessed. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So this morning we have, um, I don't use this anymore because they tell me I'm too loud. Um, so I'm excited to not have a mic thing. Um, this morning we have a, a special guest, but really a member of our family for years. Um, in the fall, I'd approached James Horton about possibly speaking sometime, um, and we couldn't figure out schedules. And I was like, so what would you preach on? He says, the fear of God. I was like, ooh, we're going to take some time on this one, you know. Um, but it's been a joy to see him not only explore how God has, has spoken this message for this morning on his heart, but to see how God has kind of tied it in um, over these last couple of months. James and his wife, Suzanne, and I think within the last year, we welcomed baby Josiah into their family and our family as well, have been with us for years. Um, I think, I was trying to think of all the different ways they've served, um, young adults, youth ministry, children ministry, I think deacons yeah. for a little bit. Um, 
so they've been very much a, a part of this community. But um, as he comes up this morning, I just want to pray for him um, before he shares the message for us. So let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you so much for James. We thank you for this message you've put on his heart. We pray that you give him just continued strength. We pray that you give him just continued wisdom. God, I thank you that you've already spoken to him. Now I pray that you speak through him. God, give us ears to hear and hearts that, that listen as well. God, help us to not just be hearers of what we hear this morning, but people who are actively going to walk in it. Bless my brother and continue to be with him and bless us now as we hear from him, through you, uh, from you through him. In your holy and precious name, amen. All right. Um, well, I told Hank this morning I hadn't really written anything down. And I was going to wing it. And uh, if worse came to worse, my plan B was to do a Festivus-style airing of grievances. But uh, I decided against that. Uh, no, actually, I wrote notes. It's okay. We're good. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised there are people here. Uh, it's, it's daylight savings, right? Like, we, we sprang forward. My wife reminded me of this on Friday. And as Hank said, you know, we're new parents. So, uh, you know, spring forward doesn't really affect us in the same way that it did before we were parents. And it's, it's almost like a benefit. I mean, my son wakes up at seven now as opposed to six, which is kind of nice. Fall back doesn't do anything for us. Now, no amount of pumpkin spice will make up for that, <laughs> partly because pumpkin spice is disgusting. Fight me. Um, but I'll kick us off with reading the scripture this is based on today. Um, all right, we got it up. It is from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that what they are doing is evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. All right, so the fear of God is actually dealt with like a lot in scripture. It turns up all over the place, and I, I suppose this seems like a weird one to pick. Um, but before I really get going, I, I sort of want to take a leaf out of Hank's book, because it's a good book to take leaves out of. Um, we're going to say what we're not going to do, because I think the fear of God has all these connotations with it, and, and Hank's uh, caution at the beginning of this, when I told him I wanted to pick this nice, easy topic to ease into this with, um, was right, because I think this has a lot of baggage attached to it, right? So here's what we're not going to do. This is not a hellfire sermon. I'm not here to scare anybody. I am not here to change a view of God that holds up that God is loving, kind, patient, a good father, that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. I'm not here to change your view of that, but I am here to say that he is not only those things. That is not all he is. 
And I think that that's vital. I think that's important to dive into. Now, the reason I picked the verse I did is because I'm a person who struggles with chronic logorrhea. Uh, I like to say a lot of words. When there's quiet, I like to fill it. My mouth runs faster than my brain, and usually I need to talk to think. And anybody who's asked me a simple question knows this, because I tend to elaborate on my opinions and thoughts on this, and I, I, I bless Hank and others for <laughs> being willing to ask me the simple questions and let me think my way through it with my mouth first. But it's interesting because we have this vision of God that says, hey, draw close to me, hey, be near to me. We can walk before God with confidence, right? But this verse kind of seems to preach caution. It says to guard your steps. Be careful. Don't say too much. Don't say stuff you don't mean. Why? So my first point is this, and it's a compound point. It's multiple things together, but they're kind of closely related. The fear of God is true, it is biblical, and it is irresistible. As I said, a compound point, they're all kind of attached together, and I think you can't really view one without considering the other. So I want to take us to the island of Patmos. That's right, I'm going to draw out of Revelation. Um, here we have John, who was probably Jesus' best friend, right? Like, John knew Jesus intimately. So much so that he was the only disciple that was stood there when Jesus was being crucified, and Jesus entrusted the care of his mother to John. Some of the best visions of intimacy with God we have from John. He's the disciple of love. He leaned back on Jesus in the Last Supper, probably heard his heartbeat, probably heard him breathe. That's a picture of intimacy that always just been a fan of I've always been a physical touch guy I love hugs and like this idea that Jesus was a hugger this idea that Jesus liked being close to people was always really special to me but in the island of Patmos John has a vision and he sees Jesus the man he walked with for three years knew intimately ate with broke bread with cared for his mother and this is how it goes down I'm just going to read from here. This is from Revelation 1, 12 to 17, if anybody's following along. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's not a normal response. If you've ever seen people meet folks at an airport, Usually falling over as though dead is not the reaction, right? Like you see your best friend, it's like you, you, you run at them and you grab them, and you get them in a bear hug. And, and that feels appropriate for the relationship that John and Jesus had, that we know they had. But 
That's not what happens. He falls over as though dead, and I don't think it's because Jesus changed his hair. It's just a shock. It's more than he could handle. It's more than he could bear. And the disciple of love who knew Jesus more intimately than any, possibly anybody else alive at that time, just crumbled. So I say this, as we pray with God and we maybe walk with a great deal of familiarity before the throne of God, is it possible our vision's too small? Is it possible that we should take extra care when we bring our prayers before God, when we come to speak to him? So I want to take us to Exodus now. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, kind of brings up this idea about Exodus that kind of surprises me because I, I think the story of the golden calf is just like straight up comedy. Like it's, it's silly. Like it's so much has happened to the Israelites up to this point, right? And they're like, hey, I know what we'll do. Let's build an idol. Like God at this point has rescued them from slavery with the Egyptians, one of the most formidable empires of its age. And he didn't even like win on a technicality. It's not like we look at it and we go, oh, you know, that, that could have been God, that might've been God. It's like, no, we're talking like plagues of locusts. Like God comes to the Egyptians and say, you've got a God of the sun, that's cute. How about darkness? You got a God of the Nile, nice. How about blood? You got a God with a head that's shaped like a frog? Well, frogs are gonna come flooding from the Nile. This was direct divine combat that took place. And you're going to make a golden calf after that? But they walk up to the Red Sea because we're not done yet. Pharaoh's chasing him. He's, God splits the Red Sea and then brings it crumbling down upon Pharaoh's armies. He was literally feeding them manna from heaven, right? When they said we want meat, God gave them quail. When they said we need water, it came from the rocks. These miracles upon miracles upon miracles, and then Moses walks up the mountain, and I think the text kind of literally goes, we don't know where Moses has gone. He's been up there like a couple of days. Maybe he's dead. We don't know. How about let's build a calf? And Aaron's like, sweet. <laughs> like, give me your gold. And, and they do it. And even when Moses comes down and takes Aaron to task, Aaron just says, I don't know. I took all this gold. I put it in the furnace, and out came a calf. What, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? That's just how furnaces work, right? And it's, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous story. But I've heard a reframing of it that kind of helped it make a, a little more sense to me. Um, and I, I think this is a possibility of how this could have gone down. You see, the Israelites celebrate a feast of the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D usually is very specific reference in scripture. That's God. They're talking about God. They're not talking necessarily about an idol. And they say, this is the Lord that brought you out of Egypt when they worship the calf. See, this is what I think. I think it's possible that the Israelites got together and they said, we really wanna honor God. We would love to praise God. And when I think of God, I think of vitality and I think of strength and I think of potential and what better than a calf to represent that. And you know what, while we're at it, God's also very valuable. We can't think of a better material than gold. What if the golden calf was actually just a representative of God? What if they made it as a way of worshiping God? So why would God get mad about that? Because God's not a calf. The vision is too small. When we put God in a box, we always limit him. And he is not to be limited, and he doesn't like it, and he's going to let you know. 
Amen. Now, we know that people don't really deal well with big things. When we talk about, like, even angelic encounters in the Bible, it's usually kind of couched in these terms. You get an angel shows up, and the first thing they say, anybody got any good guesses? Don't be afraid, right? Some of them even say stuff like, hey, stop worshiping me. That's not appropriate. We don't do that around here, <laughs> right? Like, that's, that actually happens later in Revelation. John tries to worship an angel. The angel goes, hold fire. That's the wrong guy. <laughs> like, and um, that's amazing. Every last angel in the Bible seems to prompt people to quaking in fear or worshiping spontaneously. It's kind of like you see an angel and you just think, that guy needs worshiped. You know, it's like, and that's wrong. But for somehow it seems to draw that out of us. But even the angels cover their eyes in the presence of God. God is brain meltingly awesome and powerful, and no one's going to stand before them. We know it because it's biblical. It turns up all the time. Even angels, we can't do it before them. And angels cover their eyes because of the holiness of God. See, we don't deal well with big emotions as humans. And I know this for like a couple of reasons. One is uh, I, I have a fear of whales, right? Like the big ones in the sea. And it's totally rational and it's, it's, it's your fault if you don't understand. Uh, but it's, basic, it's basically this. If you're driving down the road and you feel the car do a little someone leans to you in the car and goes, what was that? You say, I don't know. You just ended a raccoon's life. You got, you got no idea that happened. You got no idea. You just, you just finished that poor guy off as he was trying to walk across the road. That's how whales are with people. A whale could crush me under the armpit of its fin and never notice. You can swim through the arteries of a blue whale. An adult human man can swim through the arteries of a blue whale. Any claustrophobics in the audience, that ought to be driving you crazy. I still wake up thinking about it. It's just because it's big. It's way bigger than me. It can kill me by mistake. That's a good dipstick for should I be afraid of this thing. If it can kill me and not know it did it, that's a good reason, right? And, and another, another thing is, is this, is cute aggression. This is, this is a documented fact. It's on Wikipedia, so we know it's 110% true. But cute aggression is basically this, right? People get this with my son Josiah, they get it with, with uh, munchkin cats, the cats with little tiny legs, corgis, and, uh, and teacup pigs, right? You see them, and you're just overcome with a desire to make benign threats of violence. Like, you see, well, you do. You see, you see a kitten, and you say what? I just want to squeeze it. You know, you just want to crush the cat because it's just too cute to live. And people say it about my son as well. They look at his cheeks and go, I'm just going to eat his cheeks. I'm just going to eat him. I'm, I'm going to bite him. And, you know, we even, you see people do this play with kids all the time. They on their hands. And the point is this. is like I don't actually feel my son's life is being threatened by people who do this. I'm not, like, I'm not thinking, you get away. He will not eat my kid. What, what I'm thinking is this is totally normal. Why? Because there's only so much cute humans can handle, right? Your brain kind of melts. You break. My thinking is this. If we're not super good at handling munchkin kittens in our brain, I don't think we're going to do a great job before God. I don't think the awesome power of almighty, holy God is going to sit well with our constitution. We know this as well, like, 
when Isaiah encounters God in Isaiah 6, his first encounter with God. Now, he's a longtime listener, first-time caller. Like, he's turning up before God in this moment, and, like, he's been spending a lot of time with God. He knows God. Woe to me. I have unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. His first thought is, I don't belong here. I shouldn't be here. Now God in his mercy restores him and enables him to be there, only by his mercy. But he knows the holiness of God is not a place that I can stand without his help. Now, Jesus, I think, affirms this in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the one that we all know, and it's like a basic template for, like, this is how you pray. And it's a good way to set up prayer, right? Like, it's, we're not necessarily supposed to do it by rote every time we pray, but Jesus says, pray like this. This is a good way to go. And how does he kick it off? That's nah, Psalm 23. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that, that's, um, oh, now I'm forgetting it. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Our Father. That's where we start. Jesus knows the love of God and the mercy of God better than anyone, right? Like, no one's going to turn around to Jesus and say, nah, you don't get it. That's not how you pray. That's not how you start. But the way Jesus starts his prayer is, God, you're in heaven. The implication is, and here I am on earth. Sounds a little like Ecclesiastes, huh? Your name be honored as holy. Jesus Christ begins his prayer with honoring the holiness of God, with fearing God. He doesn't start with the love. He doesn't start with the mercy. He starts with fearing God. And I think maybe that is partly why we get the proverbial wisdom that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus doesn't end at the fear of God. That's not where he stops. It is where he starts, though. It's kind of interesting. As we go through the Bible, we see loads of examples of this in Ecclesiastes, Proverbs. Jesus says, don't fear man, fear God, Luke 12, 5. Which is weird, because that's a command. What do we do with a command? We obey. I don't think we're ever commanded to do something either directly or indirectly, and I think it's indirectly referenced in Scripture plenty, but I don't think we're given a command without the ability to actually carry it out. So even though the fear of God is irresistible and powerful and biblical and true, it's also something we're supposed to do. It's a posture that we're supposed to have in our lives, in our prayer lives, and I think exemplified by the way Jesus prays. Because at the end, every knee will bow. It says it in Revelation. I don't think we're going to take a survey before. Would you, like to knee, would you like to bend the knee before Jesus? I think it will be irresistible. I think we'll melt like John did, like Isaiah did, like anybody who ever met an angel did. The fear of God is irresistible. Which brings me to my second point. The fear of God makes us humble. It stands to reason that humility is a deficit of pride. 
I think pride can take a lot of different forms. Like uh, sometimes when you're proud, you're you're arrogant. You know, you you have a sense that you can do something better than anybody else, and you and you and you raise it. Sometimes it can come in the form of false humility. I heard once that there was a a worship leader who was uh, playing, and and somebody in the congregation was really blessed by it, and they walked up to him and said, "Hey, uh, I I really loved what you did. That that, that really blessed me." The worship leader said, no, no, that was the Lord, to which the congregant responded, well, it wasn't that good. And that's a form of false humility, right? That's like kind of turning it away. But I, I think the real thing about pride is it's about looking only at yourself. It's about not considering things that are bigger and broader than you. Because on the grand scheme, somebody saying I was encouraged by what you played, the answer is probably, thank you, I'm really glad right? That's somebody that's not looking at themselves. That's somebody that's not trying to put out an image of themselves. That's somebody who is just saying, I appreciate that you appreciated that. It's a good thing. And I think sometimes it can take the form of certain kinds of inner sadness. Uh, I certainly felt it when, so personal story time. When I was uh, younger, I I really, really struggled with a lot of self-loathing. And I would really punish myself like just emotionally I would I would pommel myself and it would come every like three months and I would just just the the stress and the weight of the world and the anxiety would pile on me and uh, I would turn and just say I've, I've just had enough of being me I've had enough of being in this skin I don't I don't like who I am and I would just run away from people now, like, I feel like God chased me up at one point when I was, when I was done. One time when I just ran out of, I usually ran out of energy and just kind of, you know, fell on, fell on a bed or whatever and just kind of just lay there uh, pondering. And I felt God tell me, are you done yet? And I said, yes. And he said, you're never doing this again. Now, I want to hesitate to add a caveat really quick there. Like, I'm not advocating a miracle pill there. This is not, this was very particular to my circumstances, but the fear of God is what drove me out of them. And it was powerful because it's hard to be proud when you're not looking at yourself. Now, my dad, when he was young, he used to live in the Philippines and he used to go swimming. And I, love this vision and it's always been the place I come to with God. I saw him, he, he was swimming with his goggles and his snorkel and he was going out to sea and he was looking at all the fish beneath him. And then all that gave way to darkness. I think he'd swam over some part of the continental shelf and the sea just dropped off from underneath him. If anybody remembers that episode of SpongeBob where he goes to rock bottom, it's that. It's like that. Basically, it's just straight down. And my dad looked down, and he could just see the shapes of enormous fish, and he could look out and just see the abyss of the ocean before him. He panicked and swam back. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. And I think like that's the kind of view of God we almost need to have something broad to an extent unknowable, though God makes much of himself known to us. The story of coming to know God is going to be an eternal one. It it may start now, but it's not going to end. 
Now, I think I'd be remiss to talk about the fear of God without talking about Job as well. Job was a man who loved God. He was somebody who pursued and followed God. But the last four chapters of that book are effectively God taking him to task and reminding him, who do you think you are? Who are you before me? What do you know? I think it's a little bit like in Lord of the Rings where um, Bilbo and Gandalf, the first movie, they're sat in uh, Bilbo's living room and Bilbo doesn't want to give Gandalf the ring for safekeeping. And Bilbo says, you know, oh, you just want to keep it for yourself. And Gandalf looms large suddenly. The lights in the room dim and flicker. And Gandalf towers above Bilbo and says, Bilbo Baggins, do not mistake me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. I think this is like the vision of God that we need to have. It's not so much that we view him as just enormous, because even just saying God's enormous in a way is kind of, <laughs> is kind of a limiting thing. You know what I mean? It's, he's bigger than that. His power is unknown, unlimited, and unfathomable, and we do well to keep it in mind, because even words to describe that kind of incredible power don't really exist in our language as much as they used to. Even the word awesome has been robbed of much of its power. If you look at, say, uh, I don't know, if you look up awesome on the internet, you'll probably find more to do with hot dogs and tacos than you will God. Like they'll say, awesome hot dogs, awesome tacos. And the truth is, is that like, and, and don't mistake me for being anti-taco, like I'm, I'm very pro-taco, but like if tacos were awesome, I would faint when I saw them. If tacos were awesome, I, my brain would melt on encountering tacos. If tacos were awesome, I would fall over as though dead. Now, depending on the quality of the tacos, that might happen after. <laughs> but still, it's, that's not what it is. And, and, and when we sing songs like our God is an awesome God so often because the language has been robbed of its power, we think awesome God, awesome like a taco, great. I can get behind this. And that's not where we need to go. Right? We need to have this unfathomable, unlimited view of God the same way my dad did when, that, when his heart sank. And that heart-sinking fear is actually an entire genre of fiction. It's called cosmic horror. H.P. Lovecraft got famous writing it with his Cthulhu mythos. That's the fear that he's drawing on. This idea that you're dealing with something unknowable, beyond you, simply beyond you. Because fearing God is about accepting who you are in comparison to him. I believe when this is reflected on, I think humility will follow. Because I think it can be learned, somewhat indirectly, but it can be learned. Last is this, my third point. Fear of God means we have a deeper understanding of grace. And this is where it all draws together, because so far all I've talked about is how awesome, powerful, unfathomable, incredible God is. We've talked about how Jesus highlights it in his prayer, the holiness of God. He draws us in. But there's one part I didn't finish as I was reading scripture from before. Back to Revelation 1, 12. I'm going to carry on from 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, 
I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, as we use kind of our Holy Spirit powered imaginations and we look at Revelation 1, I think the thing that's really special is this. First, John's first move out the box, fall over as though dead, right? Like, that's it. That's, that's it. He's out of moves now. He's done. Um, and he's, he's laying there at Jesus' feet, and he feels a hand on his shoulder. The only way Jesus could have put his hand on his shoulder was to have knelt next to him. Holy God, almighty God, infinite God, revealed in all his glory, knelt beside his friend to lift him up. And this is the picture of grace that we need to have. This is the picture, this is why the fear of God is so important, because when you understand the fear of God, it makes that power of grace so much more apparent. So what does Jesus say? when he lifts John up after he's fallen over as though dead and he has been kind of revived by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, what's up, buddy? It's me, Jesus. You remember? We used to hang out. Like, it's, it's not like that. The words of comfort that Jesus offers him are biblical in scale. <laughs> They're huge. He says, I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid. It's me, Jesus. You know me. You laid your head on my chest, but I'm here to tell you when you heard the breath in my body, you heard the breath of God. When you heard the heartbeat, you felt the heartbeat of God. I am infinite, and I love you. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. It seems like the comfort in that moment is kind of small. Jesus isn't just lifting him up and telling him, it's okay. He's telling him so much more. He's telling him, you're going to be fine. Why? Because I'm God. And I think this is why our vision of God needs to grow. I think this is why when we pray to God, we need to begin with humility and allow Jesus to kneel beside us and lift us up in those moments of prayer. So I think there are a couple of practical things we can do with this. I think there are a few things, a few uh, just kind of good God-ordering practices that will help us to grow in this sphere, help us to grow in this, in this moment of reflection before God. And I think the first is this. Seek out others who are good at fearing God. There's a few of them in here, and I think I'll take the opportunity to plug our prayer teams. Tim and Lynette came up to speak. I'd seek them out. Most of the time, the people that spend the most time in prayer and fasting are the people who have the most humility before God. They're able to rest before him. They're able to speak to him in that way. And I think that's special. And the last one is this, and I want you guys to consider this your homework, something for you to do, something practical that you can follow through on to develop more closely a fear of God. Pray on your knees. 
and start your prayers by highlighting the holiness of God. The simple act sometimes of getting on your knees before God is about submission. It's a physical way of showing really yourself in a lot of ways that you are before a holy and everlasting, all-powerful God, that he is in heaven, that you are on earth, that his name be hallowed, that the angels cannot even bear to stand with their eyes uncovered in his presence. So if there's one thing you take, take that home. So if you wish to live in all truth, fear God. If you wish to grow in humility, fear God. If you wish to know Jesus more intimately and rest more deeply in his grace, fear God. At this time, I'd like to invite up our intercessors um, and also our staff, any pastors in the room. Um, we'd love to pray for you for everything you've got going on. Um, thank James for the message. Um, and, and, and maybe part of your prayer is asking God, you know, how do I come before you more humbly? Or God, what do I need to trust you more? Or, or God, how do I, with whatever I'm dealing with, rest on the fact that you are so great, that you are so enormous, but you're also able to kneel down and pick me up. So let's stand and sing together and also pray together. Good 
but I have done Oh, nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious, oh, precious Is the flow that makes me white as snow all my righteousness is all my righteousness nothing but the blood of Jesus sing oh precious is oh precious is the love that makes me white as snow pray together. Our final God, we thank you that yes, you reach down and touch us. That yes, all of us who have entered into your kingdom have that one way or that one thing that you've did or you continue to do to pull us in. But God, help us to not make calves of what you've done. Help us to not make idols of, of how you've related to us. Help us to not live to put and keep you in a box because you're the one who's beyond all of our thinking, beyond all of our understanding, who's so vast and beautiful that we can only help but fall down. God, help us to fall down before you. Help us to live life knowing that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Help us to live knowing that the God who's holy, that even the angels melt before, is the same God who calls us. So God, help our lives be a living sacrifice to you. Help our lives to be a testament of who you are and what you've done. But God, we thank you that with that fear comes a humility knowing how small we are, but that the God who's so big carries us. And that fear also comes with the knowledge that that same God will always meet us, will always pick us up, and will always invite us to work with him in this world. So we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that you who's beyond our understanding knows us perfectly well. That you who we cannot love enough loves us so perfectly. And that you who forever is and forever will be has written eternity on our hearts because of your power, because of your love, because of your mercy and because of your grace. In your holy and precious name, amen. God be with you all.